<laughs> well, good morning. Welcome to Pinion Hills Community Church, and you do belong. We are starting a brand new series today called You Belong. I recently saw an article about uh, Costco opening up a brand new store in Shanghai, China. Now, they must be really excited about this because there was no Costcos in Shanghai, China before. In fact, there's no Costcos at all in China. Uh, I know we don't have a Costco here in San Juan County, but we do have a Sam's Club, and Sam's Club and Costco are very, very similar. They're membership types of stores, big box stores. You could go in, and with your membership, you get discounted member-only prices. Well, Costco announced that they're going to open up their first store in China. In the United States, we have over 500 Costco locations. In China, there's zero. So they were really excited about opening up this new store because the population of China is 1.3 billion people, which is over four times the population of the United States. So that's a lot of people in one Costco. So they opened up their doors August 27th, just over a month ago, and all hell broke loose <laughs> because pretty much all of China showed up to the one Costco on the opening day. I have a picture of, of the crazy lines at that Costco. Check this out. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's crazy. It's pandemonium. Look at this kid in the very bottom. He's just screaming. Ah! That's how I would feel as well. All sorts of crazy stuff broke out with thousands upon thousands of people showing up to this Costco. They had to call the police. There was fights. There was brawls. The police had to deal with, with parking issues. In fact, if you go onto YouTube and you type in Costco in China, you'll see videos of like women getting the same piece of meat and ripping it in half because they wanted that piece of meat. It's just craziness. So all that being said, management had to make the executive decision on their first day to close their Costco eight hours earlier than what they anticipated, and they texted this out to the general public. Costco's management in China said this. They said, the store has been clogged up with crowds. To provide you with a better shopping experience, Costco will suspend business in the afternoon. Please don't come. <laughs> Here, this is a membership store. They're like, hey, don't come. We don't want you to show up. Now, now can you imagine any scenario that we as Pinion Hills Community Church would ever send out a text blast that says, please don't come? Probably not. Maybe if it snowed like two feet. Did you know it's already snowing in Colorado today? Isn't that crazy? Maybe if it snowed two feet, yeah, I like the snow too. But if it snowed two feet, we'd have to maybe shut down and we'd have to send out a message perhaps and say, hey, please don't come because nobody can get here. I'd probably still be here with my snowshoes, my snow outfit. Um, some of you might be here as well. But perhaps if uh, our electricity went out and we had no power, then we wouldn't be able to have the lights and the screens and the microphones. Maybe then we would say, please don't come. But I can't imagine any scenario that we would ever send out a blast message telling people don't come to church today. I, I, I think that's very unlikely. Now, uh, some of you are disappointed with that because you're like, man, if you did send that message out, I could just sleep in. I don't have to come to church on Sunday. And you would be on your couch right now watching the Cowboys win, right? <laughs> oh. Some of you would be disappointed because you'd be sitting on your couch right now watching the Broncos lose. And so, I mean, whatever. Some people are excited, some people are disappointed. Some of you would really be sad because you actually enjoy coming to church. Nobody's forcing you to be here, you enjoy it. But some of you would be disheartened because if we were to close our doors and say, please don't come, many of you know that's the exact opposite of what our desire is. Our desire is to open up our doors and have as many people come and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as possible every single week. So if we were to shut our doors, many of you would be disheartened. I would be discouraged by that. 
That's not our goal. In fact, our goal is the exact opposite of that. We want people to feel as welcomed and as comfortable as possible when they show up here, which is why a couple days ago I sent out an email. I sent it out to thousands of people. Perhaps you received my email a couple days ago that says, hey, starting a brand new series called You Belong. Perhaps invite your family member or your friend or a coworker or a neighbor. Maybe you're one of those people that somebody invited and we want you to genuinely feel like you belong. If you don't get my emails, go out into the plaza or fill out the little chat card, put your name on there, put your email on there and we'll give you an update as far as, you know, when we have updates. But, but we sent out that email to thousands of people helping them feel you're welcome to come here. When you drove in, there's a little sign on the driveway that says you belong. We genuinely want people to feel like they belong here. But we don't stop there. We have a first impressions team that we have. All these volunteers that come, they show up at 8.30 every Sunday, way before some of you are even awake. They show up and they're here to greet people. When people are showing up, they're high-fiving, they're hugging, they're smiling, they're the welcoming faces. And if you want to serve on that team, great. We need more of those people because we have that first impressions team. Why? Because we want people to feel like they belong when they show up here. When you show up here, I don't know if you know this, but we, we give out free coffee every Sunday. In fact, we don't stop on free, uh, for, with free coffee just on Sunday or just on National Coffee Day. Did you know today's National Coffee Day? Anyway, so we give out free coffee not just on National Coffee Day, but we also give it out every day, Monday through Friday. The cafe is closed on Saturdays, but Sunday all the way through Friday, we're giving out free coffee. In fact, we spend nearly $1,000 a month on free coffee. That's a lot of cups of coffee. Now, why do we do that? Is it because we're like, we just have a lot of stale coffee sitting around? We have nothing to do with it? No. <laughs> it's because we want to create an environment. We want to create a place that people can come together and do life together. In fact, the entire cafe, for that matter, the Canyon Cafe, if you were to look at our books and our financials, we don't make much money every year on the Canyon Cafe. In fact, there's some years that we even lose money or even just maybe break even. Now, I'm okay with that. I know that's not a good business decision. If you have a restaurant out in the community, you can't not make money. You have to make profit. But, but the reason we have the Kenyan Cafe is not to create a profit margin. The reason we have the Kenyan Cafe is to create an environment where people can come and have meals together and get to know each other, break bread together. This is how the early church worked back in Acts chapter 3. People gathered together in their homes and they, they ate together. They shared life together. They did things together. That's the whole reason we have the Kenyan Cafe. Now, I will say... If you've never tried the food there, it's, it's, it's good, especially the mat burrito. <laughs> uh, the mat burrito's got bacon, green chili, chorizo. It's got a hint of a ghost pepper sauce. It's not too spicy, but it's got a whole lot of flavor. <laughs> if you do eat there, all the food is good. The burgers are good. The Albuquerque turkey is good. I would encourage you to try the food. We've actually won awards in the community for being some of the best food out there or providing some of the best food out there. If we do ever make a profit, that, the proceeds from that go back into our community to helping serve the people in our community. But all that being said, that's not even the goal. The goal is not to take the profits and, and use it to, to further the community and build community. The goal is to provide an environment right here, right inside this church where people can come together, eat together, do life together, and have a sense of belonging. We go to extreme measures in this church. All sorts of different teams, all sorts of different strategies, all sorts of different tools to help people feel like this is their home. These are their people. This is their community, that this is a place that you belong. Now, quite frankly, I wish that we were the ones that came up with that. I wish it was my idea that I was the one that came up with this whole campaign encouraging people to belong, but it's not my idea. It's not the staff's idea. It came from God. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14 to his disciples. He says this in verses 2 and 3. He says, My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is basically saying, hey, 
you belong. You know, we have all these different plans here at church to help people belong. We give out these little tumblers for first-time visitors. We want people to feel like they belong. You come and, and, and meet me in the plaza after the service, we'll give you the free water bottle. Why? Because we want you to belong. Jesus is saying, hey, in my Father's house in heaven, we've got a, we've got a room with your name on it. We're preparing a place for you right now as we speak in heaven in eternity. There's a room. We're giving out water bottles. But Jesus is saying, we've got a room in my Father's house with your name on it. A couple months ago, I went with a couple friends over to Chama. We went to this hunter's lodge. And it's like this nice lodge out in the middle of nowhere. There's not a whole lot of things going on in Chama, New Mexico. But we go out there. And when I show up, I got my bag. I go to my little room. And on the door is my name, Matt Mizell. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like I am somebody. (laughs) My name's on the door. I felt like I, I was a part of it. It felt like a home away from home. It felt like I belonged. That's the point Jesus is making. He says, in my father's house, there's lots of rooms. And one of those rooms is for you. One of those rooms has your name on it. What a privilege. That God would have a room for us in his house in eternity? That, that Jesus is preparing a place for you and for I? Especially when you think about all throughout history, there's so many great people that we read throughout Scripture to think that we're a part of the same story, this great epic story. I think the story of Scripture, the story of the Bible, is the greatest story of all time. And to think that you have a role in that is mind-blowing. Let me go back and kind of give the 30,000-foot view as far as what I'm talking about. Because in the beginning, this epic story, the greatest story of all time, starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the what? the heavens and the earth. And right after that, he creates plants. He says it's good. He creates stars. He says it's good. He creates oceans. He says it's good. He creates mountains. He says it's good. And then he creates Adam and Eve. He creates mankind, and he says it is very good. The pinnacle of all of his creation, everything's good, 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 good. And then he makes mankind. It's very good. And even though Adam and Eve were very good in God's, in God's sight and his perspective, the very good creation made a very bad decision. They choose to be disobedient to God. They ate from the one tree that they weren't allowed to eat from. So they ate from this tree. We talked about last week, who, he who spares the rod hates his son. So God disciplines Adam and Eve by kicking them out of paradise. They're no longer dis- allowed to stay in the garden. So once they're out of the garden, Adam and Eve begin to have kids. They have a bunch of sons. They have a bunch of daughters. The daughters aren't listed in scripture, but some of the sons are Cain, Abel, and Seth. I feel a little bit bad for Seth because he's kind of like the third wheel in the family tree. Like nobody really talks about Seth. They talk about Cain and Abel a lot. Cain is a guy that's pretty rebellious. Now we've heard also last week we talked about train a child on the way they should go and they won't depart from it. So I don't know who screwed that up. I don't know if Adam screwed that up. I don't know if Eve screwed that up or if just Cain was a rebellious kid. But Cain winds up getting jealous of his brother Abel and he murders his own brother. So Abel is off the picture. He's off the grid. Meanwhile, as a punishment, Cain's family tree doesn't go very far either, so he also is off the grid. Cain and Abel, they're both disappearing from history. Thank goodness for that third wheel of Seth, because Seth's family, his family line, continues on the heritage, the family tree of Adam and Eve. So from family, the family tree of Seth, a couple generations go by, and a guy named Noah is born. Noah begins to grow up. He gets a little bit older. God comes to Noah one day and says, hey, Noah. Noah's like, what's up, God? He's like, hey, how long can you tread water? Noah's like, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? I don't, I don't really know how to swim. He's like, I know, you got to figure it out because it's about the rain. He's like, what's rain? I've never seen rain. All of a sudden, the rainstorms come and Hurricane Katrina pretty much all over the world. Thank goodness Noah had built an ark. He put his family on the ark. He put all those animals on the ark. And after 40 days of the earth drowning pretty much, finally the waters go away. They recede and the continuation of the family tree from Adam and Eve keeps going. The, f- the family tree keeps continuing. The story keeps continuing. 
So Noah has a great, 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 great grandson. Ten generations later, another kid is born. His name's Abraham. Abraham begins to grow up. Abraham gets a wife named Sarah. Sarah and Abraham want to have kids, but they can't. They're still struggling with infertility. There's no in vitro. There's no adoption programs. There's none of that. And so they're like, I guess we just won't have kids. But God comes to Abraham one day. He says, Abraham, look at the stars. The stars they're not even close to the number of inhabitants of this earth, the descendants you're going to have. Your descendants will outnumber the stars that you see in the sky. And Abraham's like, that's cool, but how's that going to happen? Because we can't have kids. They're getting older and older and older. One day Sarah comes to Abraham and is like, hey, Abraham, I got a new song. I want to, I want to play it for you. I want, to, I want you to learn this new song. And Abraham's like, okay, what's the song? She says, okay, it goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. And Abraham's like, wait, what? Am I going to be a father? Am I going to be a dad? Are you Prego? She's like, yeah, I'm Prego. We're going to have a kid. And so they have a kid. They name him Isaac. And Isaac is born. And Abraham's like, yes, finally, my descendants. I get to have descendants that outnumber the stars. This is awesome. But then God comes to Abraham and says, hey, who do you love more, me or Isaac? And Abraham's like, well, I've been waiting for a boy for a long time, but I love you, God. God says, prove it. Kill him. Oh, things just got real. Abraham says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've been waiting for decade after decade after decade for a son. You finally give me a son. You want, you want to kill him? That doesn't make sense. But okay, God, you got the full picture. I don't. So okay, I'm going to take my boy Isaac up to the top of the mountain. You get up to the top of the mountain. I'm sure Isaac's like, Dad, what are we doing for fun up here? Are we going to go fly fishing? Is there like an ATV up here? Is there a zip line? What are we doing? Abraham's like, I don't think you're going to enjoy what we're doing. He pulls out a switchblade, gets ready to kill his own son. At which point, there's a ram over in the bushes. He looks over. Oh, there's a there's something I can sacrifice instead. God says, you've proven your loyalty and proven your dedication. Sacrifice this ram instead of your son. So Isaac continues growing up. He's probably got some daddy issues because daddy almost killed him. <laughs> but Isaac, Isaac grows up and he winds up having a son named Jacob. Everybody say Jacob. Jacob comes into the picture and Jacob finds this girl named Rachel. He's got the hots for this girl, Rachel. He's like, hey, baby, keep us so. Can I get your phone number? And she's like, I, okay. And so they start making plans to get married, Jacob and Rachel. But then I don't really know how this happens. Somehow by accident, Jacob marries Rachel's sister, Leah, instead. Whoops, bad day, right? So he marries the sister. But instead of getting an annulment, I guess annulments didn't exist back then. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll keep this bride over here. But I really wanted to marry Rachel. So I'm going to marry her too. Not instead of two. <laughs> now he's got two wives and their sisters. This is the first episode ever of sister wives. Like Jacob married sisters. That's going to go well. <laughs> so between these two sisters, he has 13 kids. I thought three kids was a lot to handle. My sister just had number seven. I'm like, you're crazy. They have 13 kids. Jacob and his wives have 13 children. You got to like drive a school bus around just to get your family from one place to another. So they have 13 kids. One day, Jacob gets into an argument with God, like a literal argument, like a fight. They're fighting God versus Jacob, Jacob versus God. Like if this is a UFC fight in the octagon, guess who's going to win? God. <laughs> so God takes out Jacob, but he was like, hey, that was a pretty impressive. You, you tried to fight me. So I'm going to rename you Jacob. I'm going to rename you to Israel because the name Israel means fighter. The name Israel means contender. You tried to fight me. I, I took you out. You, you're no match for God, but I'm going to rename you. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel. So now Israel, who's just gotten renamed, has 13 sons. Now he didn't get the memo that you're not allowed to have a favorite kid. We're not supposed to have favorite kids, but Israel's favorite son's name's Joseph. So Joseph, he's the favorite of Israel, the father, and all the other 12 brothers realize he's the favorite kid. So all the other 12 brothers are like, that's not cool. We don't like that Joseph's dad's favorite, so we're gonna kill him. 
We're going to kill him. And so the day that they decided to kill him, they decided to kill him. They decided to off him and get away with him. But instead, they're like, hey, you know what? He's probably worth something. Let's sell him instead. So they sell him to some merchant traders. These merchant traders, they trade him, they trade him, they trade him. Eventually, Joseph winds up in the palace in Egypt with Pharaoh. So now he's under Pharaoh's command. God comes to Joseph and says, hey, there's about to be a famine throughout the entire land. Prepare in Egypt. Prepare for what's about to come. So Joseph does. He starts getting all sorts of food ready for the famine. All of a sudden, the famine hits. The famine hits all the way back in Joseph's family's town over in Palestine. There's no food. So Israel, the dad, plus the other 12 sons, they're like, we're going to starve to death. But word on the street is that Pharaoh's got food in Egypt. So these 12 brothers, they go back over to Egypt. They knock on the door of the palace for for Pharaoh, thinking that maybe Pharaoh's going to answer the door. But guess who answers the door? Joseph. Joseph, the brother, they sold into slavery. Joseph answers the door. He's like, hey, guess who it is? (laughs) He says, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I'm not going to do what you did to me. So yeah, I'll hook you up. I'll give you some food. Take this food back to, to Israel. Take it back to my family. So they take this food back. Dad, Israel, finds out that his favorite son is still alive. So he says, you know what? Let's pick up our entire family. Let's all move out to Egypt to be closer to my favorite son. So they make, move this entire family. The whole family, all of Israel and all of his family members, all the Israelites, all move over into Egypt where there's food. Now they get over there. And they start multiplying. This family, this family of Israel starts multiplying. More and more and more and more and more people start coming. It like becomes a bigger family tree than the Corleys in San Juan County. I mean, this is a massive family tree. <laughs> you laugh because you know a Corley <laughs> or you are a Corley. <laughs> these Israelites are gaining in numbers. So Pharaoh sees all these Israelites and, 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 and he's like, wow, what if they overthrow the throne? What if they take over the government in Egypt? And so he says, you know what? To prevent that from happening, I'm putting all the Israelites, his whole massive family, into captivity. So now they're held in captivity. They're slaves. They're slaves to Pharaoh. He's making them build projects. He's making them build uh, uh, bricks and whatnot. Well, one day there's this woman who's an Israelite woman. She gives birth to a son, and she says, I don't want my son to grow up in this captivity. He might get killed off. He might get murdered. So she took a chance. She put him in a basket, floated a boy down the Nile, hoping that maybe, just maybe, one of the Egyptians would find the floating boy and adopt him. Sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter walks out to the river on the Nile. She sees this floating boy come by. She pulls him out of the water. She names him Moses. Moses begins to grow up in the, in the palace. Moses is in royalty because he's on the Egyptian side, but he's an adopted kid. He's really an Israelite, but he's been adopted in this family. He grows a little bit older, and he discovers that he's adopted, that his bloodline are the Israelites, and he sees how Pharaoh is treating his family, the Israelites. So he goes to his step-grandfather, Pharaoh, he says, hey, I want you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no can do, homie. <laughs> and so Moses says, okay, then I got to bring the thunder and the lightning and you're going to get caught in the storm. <laughs> and so Moses brings plague after plague after plague after plague down upon the Egyptians and on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't budge at all until finally Pharaoh's own son is killed by one of the plagues. So because one of these plagues takes out the son, finally Pharaoh, he says, you know what? Take all your people and get out of here. Get out of Egypt. So Moses mobilizes two million people. That's the family tree now. Two million Israelites, and they book it in a mass exodus getting out of Egypt. They start taking off, and they're heading towards the promised land that God had promised the ancestors before, all the way back to Abraham. So they're heading towards the promised land. Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, let's go after these guys, but they still wind up escaping. They get on the way to the promised land, and on the way, they come across a mountain where where Moses goes to the top of the mountain on Mount Sinai, where he's delivered the Ten Commandments. He brings the Ten Commandments back down to the whole family tree of all these Israelites and says, guys, we've just come out of captivity. This is God's plan for us. We are f- supposed to follow these rules and these regulations, but the Israelites are like, 
no thanks, we don't do things our way. So instead of going all the way to the promised land, they begin wandering around the desert for 40 years. Finally, they come to their senses after 40 years and finally head start, start heading towards the promised land. And just before they get into the promised land, their leader Moses dies. His second-hand man that he's been raising up is his apprentice. His name is Joshua. Everybody say Joshua. Joshua takes control. He leads the Israelites into the promised land. They divide it into 12 different sections based on Israel, the father's 12 different sons. They divide it into 12 sections. But as these guys are looking around, they're like, we don't have a real leader. We don't have a king. All the other countries around us have kings. We don't have a king. So they put in a king into, into position. His name is Saul. Saul becomes the king over the nation of Israel. Now, the irony to that is that Saul doesn't love God. He doesn't believe God. He doesn't have faith in God. He doesn't trust God. So this is a bad match, putting a guy that's not a believer in God in the, the leadership position over this entire nation. And it comes out in this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. There's this massive Goliath guy who's like seven-something feet tall. He's huge. And Saul, he could go out there and take him out. Had he had faith, had he had belief, had he had trust in God, he could have said, God's got my back. I'm going to go take this guy out. But he's too much of a pansy, too much of a wimp. Meanwhile, a little shepherd boy shows up, David. He says, put me in, coach. I'll go take him out. That guy's defying my God. He's defying the armies of God. And because you've done that, Goliath, today, I will cut your head off. So Saul sends him in. Sure enough, he cuts his head off. He's walking around town with the head of Goliath. Everybody's like, wow, David, you're amazing. So Saul starts to get jealous. And it turns into a cat and mouse game, Saul versus David. Eventually, David escapes. King Saul dies after com committing suicide. He's out of the picture. And after this point, now David becomes the king of Israel. He's the leader of all these Israelites. And, and, and in that position, he's a guy who loves God. He's a man after God's own heart. So he decides, I'm going to build a temple in Israel to honor God, to bring glory to God. But then he sees a woman bathing on the top of the rooftop named Bathsheba. He winds up getting into an adulterous affair with her, gets her pregnant, commits multiple murders to cover up this pregnancy. And, and while this is taking place, meanwhile, God comes back to him and says, hey, because of this epic failure over here, you're no longer qualified to build a temple honoring me. So I'm going to revoke the opportunity for you to be the designer and the architect for the temple. Meanwhile, Bathsheba and David, they get married. They have a kid. Part of the consequence to their decisions is that they lose their first child. But then they have a second child, and they name him Solomon. Solomon begins to grow up, and King David says, well, I don't want Solomon to make the same mistakes that I made, so I'm going to write down a bunch of my wisdom, a lot of the things to do and things to not do. Gives that all to Solomon. Solomon takes that plus advice from these kings and these advisors and all these different mentors, all these different people, and he puts it all into one little book that you and I can read called the Book of Proverbs. That's where we just came from. That whole series that we just came from is all about the Book of Proverbs. But he didn't stop there. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. He wrote a book called The Song of Solomon. And not only did he do that that gets added to our holy scriptures, but he also did what his dad was not allowed to do. He built the temple to honor God, Solomon's temple. Now, word gets out through the Persian Empire that Solomon has built a temple to the God of Israel. Solomon winds up passing away, but some of the other kings throughout the Persian Empire, they're like, we don't like that there's a, a temple that's built specifically for God, the God of Israel. We don't like that. There's one particular king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the ruler over a place called Babylon. And he finds out that there's a, a temple built by Solomon, but Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to be a god. I want people to worship me. I want people to bow down to me. So he sends his armies over to where this temple is, and they tear down Solomon's temple. While they're there, they take all these Israelites, and they put them back into captivity again. They bring them over to Babylon, and for a period of 70 years, they're held captive again. But this group of Israelites this time consists of new people, young men, 
men like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People who are saying, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar, you could say whatever you want. You could tell us to bow down to your golden statues, but we will not do that. We worship the one and only God, the God of Israel. So kill us if you want, but we are not bowing down to you. And because of these bold teenage boys, even King Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pagan ruler at one point, changes his whole tune and says, you know what, the God of Israel is the one and only true God. Now, mind you, while all of that is taking place, throughout Scripture, we have the major prophets and we have the minor prophets. And there's all different prophets, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They're all prophesying about the arrival of the the future king of Israel. And this future king, he's going to be a savior to not just people in Israel, but to the world. And prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, all throughout this whole storyline, there's all these prophecies coming out that, that the Messiah is coming. So... On one random, silent night, a couple named Mary and Joseph give birth to a son and they name him Jesus. And Jesus is born. He begins to grow up and grow older in age and he begins to walk around telling people, hey, remember all those prophecies? This whole story, this whole family tree? I am the fulfillment of all those prophecies. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And people said, liar. You're not what we expected. We expected a guy in a black stallion to show up. We thought a guy with a big sword, a big spear. We thought maybe like David, like cutting people's heads off and stuff. That's what we expected for our, our Savior. But you're, you're talking about like loving your enemies. You're saying things like we should have grace for people. And he says, yeah, not only that. He says, but, but look at this. And once again, I bring you back to John 14. He says, this brings everything full circle. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, you belong in heaven with God the Father. There's a house and there's a room and it's got your name on it. You belong in that, that house. And here's what's fascinating to me is that all those characters that I just rattled through, through the 30,000-foot view of Scripture, many of those people will be in that house in heaven. And to think that Jesus is also saying to you and to I, I'm preparing a place for you in that house, that you're going to have a room with your name on it. It's mind-blowing to think that you might be neighbors with Abraham. In heaven, you might be next-door neighbors to David. You might be next door neighbors to Noah or to Moses. You see, all these famous characters that we study, that we read about, they're not just characters. These are part of the bigger picture, the family of God. And when I think about you and I, we are selected and picked to be a part of that epic story is mind-blowing. The greatest story of all time is Scripture, all those things that I was just telling you. But we're a part of the story. You're not an accident. You're not here by mistake. God has created you. He's crafted you. He's knit you together in your mother's womb. You have a role in the greatest story of all time, which leads me to this question. What is your role? If God has crafted you, he's created you, he's designed you, he's cast you in his movie, his book, his story, what's your role? Now, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know what my role is. That's okay. Because over the course of the next four weeks, 
We're going to come down from the 30,000-foot view, and we're going to make it a lot more specific as far as how you can identify your purpose and your role and why you are here, what God has in store for you. But before we get to that, starting with next week, the truth I want you to realize is that God has put you in his huge, grasp, uh, grand, vast, epic story. He's placed you in the greatest story of all time. And I may not know exactly what your role is. I may not know exactly what you were designed to do, but God does. And so over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to dive in more and more and get more specific as far as what is your role? Why in the world are you here? What does God want from you in the greatest story of all time? But what you need to realize is that you have a part. God has placed you in his story. And you belong in God's story. You belong in his story which means you belong in history. The big picture, greatest story of all time, you have a role in that. To me, I don't quite understand it. That God would choose people like you, choose people like me to be in his epic, incredible story. When I think about all these characters that we just went through, and we're one of them, we have a role just like the others. That someday in eternity, we're going to be neighbors. We're going to be next-door roommates with, with some of these greats in history. That God would use us in the big picture. What a privilege. What a responsibility. What an exciting adventure to be a part of the greatest story of all time. You belong in his story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you pick us. You've designed us. You've crafted us to place us in your story. It's not because we deserve it. It's because you love us and you know the big picture and we don't. So God, I pray that we have the mentality that as, as a role, having a role, being a cast member in your story, God, here I am. Use me. However you want to use me, whatever it is that my purpose is, God, I pray that for each one of us today that we would be open, our minds, our hearts would be open to be used how you want us in your story. We're just a, a player in your story. But God, what a privilege that is to, to be included in, in what you're doing. So God, we say thank you, and we want to have open hearts and open minds as we anticipate you leading us and guiding us, whether how young we are, how old we are, that we would be open to being utilized however you want us in your story. We say this in Jesus' name, amen.